For this evening, I would like to try to locate the practice of son within the classical frame of uh, traditional Buddhism, Indian Buddhism in particular, and its idea of the, the Four Noble Truths. How do these things connect? Let's begin with a fairly well-known story that comes from the earliest uh, part of the history of Chan, Son, in uh, China. As you probably know, Chan was believed to have been introduced to China by an Indian monk called Bodhidharma. And Bodhidharma is certainly an, an historical figure. He came from the great Buddhist centers of practice in southern India, probably came by boat to China, and this would have been sometime in the 6th century um, of the Common Era. And one of the first uh, people who took an interest in him was a man called Emperor Wu of a, of a, <clears throat> a kingdom called Liang. We're not quite sure where that is. But there is a dialogue recorded between the two men. And Emperor Wu thought of himself as a, as a good, devout Buddhist who did a lot of good works and was interested in understanding the teaching and so on. And so when Bodhidharma came into his uh, court, then the emperor asked him, um, please, um, could you explain to me the holy truths of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma replied, unholy emptiness. And the emperor then said, well, in that case, who's standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. Now, this exchange, I think, captures something quite quintessential about the, uh, the Chan or Zen style. Um, as we can see, there is um, a very abrupt dismissal of um, the need to somehow explain the holy truths of Buddhism. And one could easily imagine that what the king had in mind would, would have been the Four Noble Truths. These are the, the sacred, the holy truths of the Buddhist religion. Bodhidharma won't have anything to do with that, but instead speaks of unholy emptiness. And in the term unholy, he seems to be uh, pulling the rug um, beneath the feet of the emperor and all of his conceits about being a great religious ruler and so on uh, from under him. He won't go down that track. And instead he uh, voices the idea that um, rather than holy truths, there is unholy emptiness. We'll come back to emptiness. Martin already introduced the idea last night. And understandably, um, if one makes such a statement, then that throws into question um, who you are if everything is simply empty. And Bodhidharma's reply, uh, who is standing before me, um, is a very honest one, and one that we've already seen as being the flip side of the question, what is this? Namely, I don't know. So in, there, in, in that statement too, there's a, a, a relinquishment of any kind of claim to have acquired certainty and knowledge of some kind. So this doesn't um, seem to be a terribly promising beginning for um, locating the practice of what is this, I don't know, within the classical framework 
of the Four Noble Truths. And some traditional Buddhist might suggest, well, if you can't do that, then to what extent can you consider these teachings to be Buddhist? And this indeed has been one of the objections to Chan, or Zen, Son, um, over the centuries, particularly from the schools that um, are more firmly rooted in the Indian way of thinking. However, um, when we start to look more carefully uh, at this doctrine of the Four Noble Truths, it doesn't actually turn out to be quite so uh, venerable and ancient as it might at first glance appear. The idea of noble truth seems from what we have learned from contemporary scholars, uh, philologists, people who pick apart texts grammatically and syntactically, is that the very idea of noble truth was probably uh, built on at a later date. And that what might have been there more uh, in the beginning uh, was actually had no reference to truths or noble truths at all. And this would somehow give confirmation in a way to Bodhidharma's refusal to have anything to do with holy truths. In terms of what we've been uh, discussing and practicing here, um, there's something already, I think, quite um, troubling if we take noble truths, four noble truths, as the sort of foundation for what we're doing. Because if we just reflect for a moment on what these four noble truths are, the first is the truth of suffering. The second is the truth of the origin of suffering, which is understood to be grasping or, or craving. The third is the truth of the ending of suffering, which is the uh, elimination of craving. And the fourth truth is the, the eightfold path that leads to the ending of suffering. This is obviously very familiar to anyone who's ever opened up a book on Buddhism. But in terms of what we were speaking about yesterday or the day before, um, making a differentiation between problems and mysteries, the Four Noble Truths are clearly presenting a problem and a solution to that problem. The problem is dukkha, the problem is suffering, the First Noble Truth. The, um, the source of that problem is craving or grasping, and the way to solve the problem of suffering is by getting rid of its cause, craving, which will lead to suffering no longer being um, uh, there. One will have achieved the famous ending of suffering, nirvana. And this is a very explicit presentation of a problem-solving strategy. In other words, my life, birth, sickness, aging, death, these are problems, and Buddhism provides us with a, a strategy, a series of techniques, which if correctly applied, will lead to the solution of that problem, and we won't suffer anymore. But this presentation um, presupposes that we uh, agree to look at the world in that way. I actually find it uh, quite difficult to think of my life as a problem that can be solved. The birth, sickness, aging and death are problems that can be somehow done away with. And in classical Buddhism, um, this is exactly what is presented uh, as the practice, and uh, inevitably it um, leads to a um, solution that 
requires that we no longer get born again. It's the ending of rebirth, the ending of the cycle of birth and death. That's the solution to the problem. The solution of the problem to life is uh, to get rid of what it is that causes life and causes life and death. And then we've attained nirvana, whatever that might be. And from that perspective, um, it's entirely understandable how the Dharma will be presented as a kind of a science of the mind, which is a common expression, or a spiritual technique or technology, which is also a language used, that by, putting, by being put into practice uh, in a, the correct way will lead to the solution to the problem. <clears throat> now, if we don't think of life as a problem or death and sickness as problems, but think of them as mysteries, which frankly I find more intelligible, because the more that we look into the heart of our life, the fact of having been thrown into this world at birth with the sole certainty that we'll be ejected again at death and the intervening period, however long or short that may be, um, uh, is what we call life. But the closer we come to embracing and uh, penetrating into this extraordinarily strange thing called life, it doesn't become less strange. It doesn't become less mysterious or weird. But I feel, as we said the other night, that it actually becomes more mysterious, becomes more mind-stopping and mind-baffling. So if we were to start from that perspective of life as a mystery rather than a problem to be solved, then we're going to have to reconsider what traditionally are understood as the Four Noble Truths, which seem quite clearly predicated on the idea of life being a problem and Buddhism has got the solution to remove that problem. So I think the, the key to this, at least in my own uh, understanding, um, is to put aside the idea of the Four Noble Truths, for which there is some you know, scholarly le um, legitimacy, and to consider what would be left once we take out the idea of noble truth. And what we will arrive at, um, and this again is quite clearly stated in the Buddha's first uh, discourse, um, is not a set of truths, but a set of tasks. Not a set of propositions that we can either believe to be true or not, but a set of tasks actions that we can choose to perform or not. We move, in other words, from a truth-based metaphysics, which claims you know, general truths about the nature of life, to a task-based ethics. My own uh, view on this is that at a certain point, Buddhism made a metaphysical turn that it um, ceased to think of itself as a pragmatic uh, ethic and thought of itself more as a truth-based metaphysics. And possibly the reason for that was because it had to contend in India with other traditions who saw themselves in that way. And it got drawn into that language game, as it were. But if we, if we put that into brackets and come back to what um, the core ethic may have been, and by ethic I don't mean morality, but 
rather a way of life, a way of practice in which we seek to flourish optimally as persons, then we kind of talk, meaning we kind of give us a, a twist to um, the classical Buddhist doctrine and find ourselves confronted with a series of, of suggestions or injunctions to act in a certain way. Now, Chan or Son or Zen, I'm just going to say Son, we'll get used to that in a minute, um, does in fact claim to have a lineage that goes back not only through the Chinese ancestors, um, but to Bodhidharma himself as the first patriarch of the Chinese tradition, and before Bodhidharma, all the way back to the Buddha in an unbroken line. Now, scholars have examined this lineage by looking at the dates of the different people involved, and it doesn't hold a great deal of water. Uh, it's not something I think we can take literally. But nonetheless, um, I do have a certain uh, trust, uh, an intuitive trust, that they are actually uh, uh, claiming to somehow continue a tradition that got sidetracked by scholarship and theory and metaphysics. And the Chan tradition uh, insists that it's somehow uh, communicating through its teaching something that was not actually written down. Now we can understand that in a variety of ways. But I think the main idea is that it considers itself a living tradition that is passed on through the example of individual men and women rather than passed down through uh, uh, um, uh, collections of writings and teachings and texts. And I think all Buddhist traditions to some extent uh, would consider themselves in that way. But possibly the Chan tradition might carry with it um, at least a hint or a resonance of uh, the early teachings of the Buddha before they became crystallized into uh, metaphysical theories. So Bodhidharma's rejection of these holy truths and his affirmation of an unholy emptiness could be uh, a, a one way of referring back to something that predates the famous Four Noble Truths. So what then, um, once we have bracketed off these truths, um, what is left, what do we find? I've already suggested that there are four tasks involved. And these are quite um, clearly stated at the end of the Buddha's first discourse. Uh, where he says, um, it was not until I had recognized, performed, and accomplished these four tasks could I consider myself to be fully awake. It's a very explicit uh, definition of what it means to be awake. And he doesn't say, it was only when I understood the Four Noble Truths correctly, got that right, then I was awake. In other words, by according my, um, uh, getting my mind to be in accordance or correspondence with what is true. He doesn't use that language. He uses the language of having recognized, performed, and accomplished a sequence of tasks. And these tasks are stated, again, quite explicitly in this text, the, the first task is to, um, to fully know or comprehend dukkha, the second, or suffering. The second task is to let go of craving, or what I prefer to call reactivity. The third task is to behold the stopping of that reactivity. And the fourth task is to bring into being or to cultivate a way of life, the Eightfold Path. So this 
really uh, sort of changes the whole order of how we might understand this core uh, teaching. Um, it's not about re agreeing that certain propositions are true, but it's about uh, recognizing that certain practices can be performed that will actually have a consequence one onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, which will uh, result in another way of being in this world. In other words, the Eightfold Path, in other words, a way of life that embraces all of our humanity, is considered to be the goal, uh, not the stopping of suffering. It's a quite different template that begins to appear here. So again, just to repeat, um, to comprehend dukkha, suffering, life, to let go of reactivity, to, to see the stopping of reactivity, and to cultivate or bring into being a way of life. These are the four tasks. And they can be summarized quite simply with an acronym, uh, ELSA, embrace, let go, stop, or see, and act. That's the template within which I would like to uh, rethink the Four Noble Truths. But that's still begging a question. How does this SON practice we're doing on this retreat um, fit with that model? I personally feel it fits far better than with the Four Noble Truth model. So let's have a look at that. So the first task uh, is embracing suffering. Suffering is a problematic word because it inevitably in English suggests only the painful parts of life. Uh, and Buddhists are often held to account for saying that life is misery and painful and suffering and dreadful. But actually dukkha is really a kind of heuristic, a kind of a rule of thumb, a kind of shorthand for life. But life in the sense in which we use the word, for example, in the expression, well, that's life. Something bad happens, well, that's life. You know, you get old and you lose all your teeth, well, that's life. And the way the word life is used in that sense, uh, I think is very close to that global um, way in which the Buddha uses the word dukkha. So it doesn't just mean pain, but it means the human condition with clearly an, you know, a flagging its tragic dimension, that it will end. Even the most joyous and beautiful experiences in human life will end. They will be um, compromised or they will you know, be suddenly shattered. That nothing is really, in the end, reliable or sufficiently uh, uh, sound for us to really be assured of you know, permanent well-being. We don't live in that kind of world. So in other words, if we think of this first task as, as opening ourselves uh, totally to life, and the word embrace or fully know literally means to to pari means around, it's to somehow embrace, to, to open ourselves totally to the experience of life itself. And the question, what is this, is simply one of different ways in which we do that. So by asking ourselves, what is this, particularly when we have let go of the idea that this refers to any specific detail of our experience, but refers to the totality of life in this moment, which it clearly does. We're not asking, what is this breath, or what is this pain in my knee? We're asking, what is this? This moment, this total experience that 
is coming at us through the senses that's bubbling up within our mind, uh, that is held in our memory, that is projected into our sense of what we do next. What is this? In other words, to, um, uh, to ask this question is to practice the first of these four tasks. Of course, we can also practice this in other ways. We can cultivate mindfulness, for example, or awareness, uh, concentration, all of pretty much all forms of meditative or contemplative practice are ways of embracing understanding the condition we are in. And what, a, what is this, I feel, is a, for me at least, a, another dimension of this embrace. So it's not embracing life as a series of facts that we can more or less um, grasp and understand and describe, but actually it's an opening ourselves to the sheer immediacy of what's going on uh, being able to say yes to that and being al allowing ourselves to be surprised and astonished by it for it to become a question for us rather than a set of more or less interesting facts. And at the same time, it's also a humility in which we acknowledge that Fundamentally, we don't know what life is. I don't, at least. I can have all sorts of concepts and ideas and theories and beliefs and so on, but when it comes down to the, the, the most primary, um, unmediated experience uh, here and now, I have to acknowledge a humility. I don't know. This is mysterious. This is weird what's going on. So how does that then lead into the second task, that of letting go of reactivity or craving? Well, I think in the context of this practice, it's letting go of what we know, letting go of opinions, letting go of beliefs. And as someone asked on the first evening, as soon as we ask this question, we immediately, reactively, automatically come up with answers. And that's, in a way, what we let go of here. In traditional Buddhism, in Indian Buddhism, they talk more in terms of attachment and aversion and so on. But they always include moha, ignorance, confusion. And I think that's, again, shorthand for... Um, not simply a, a failure to understand what's going on, but rather a kind of preconceived idea of what it is that is going on. And when we ask this question, it's hardly surprising, therefore, that all of our preconceived ideas jump up into our minds and say, hey, I know what this is all about. So the second task, if we look at this in the framework of this practice is to let go of those thoughts and concepts and answers that keep popping up into the mind and not um, getting caught up in their story, not becoming persuaded by their certainties, but simply seeing that as the play of the mind that comes, it goes, and not getting caught up in it. And that is what letting go means. Uh, letting go do doesn't mean suppressing or, or pushing something away, but it rather means to see it for what it is. And interestingly, this idea of letting go of opinions is exactly the phrase that Nagarjuna, the, the Madhyamaka philosopher, Indian philosopher, uh, uses to define emptiness. Nagarjuna says in his Mula Madhyamaka Karika, I think it's chapter 13, he says, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable, is the expression. It's a famous verse. But it accords very well with this approach. 
In other words, emptiness is not some privileged religious or spiritual state or object that we can come to know correctly. And again, Indian Buddhism tends to present it as an ultimate truth, whereas for Nagarjuna, it is a letting go. It's a letting go of opinions. In other words, it's rather more like an emptying than an emptiness. It's a process. It's, it's, a, it's a dropping away. Remember Dogen, when he came back from China, described his moment of insight or enlightenment as when body and mind fell away. as a loss of something, a dropping away of something. And so this brings us then to the third of these tasks, which is beholding the stopping of reactivity, literally, or the stopping of craving. But let's use the word reactivity. So this refers to allowing ourselves to rest or dwell in this emptiness, this emptiness of opinion, this emptiness of views. Again, when we go back to the early sources in the Pali, the Buddha doesn't talk of emptiness as something to, uh, to understand or to gain insight into. That's quite alien to the early discourses. Instead, uh, he says that you dwell in emptiness. The same word like dwelling in the breath we saw on the first morning. Dwelling uh, in the rhythm of breathing. And he uses exactly the same word, viharati, to dwell in emptiness. Emptiness is a dwelling, and he describes emptiness as the absence of reactivity, the absence of opinionatedness, of this push-pull of attraction-aversion. It's coming to a stop. It's resting in uh, an inner stillness and clarity. And that, too, is very much part of the practice that we're doing here. We're embracing our life with the question, what is this? We're letting go of whatever thoughts and theories and ideas might arise in response to that. And that allows us to dwell and to rest in the empty uh, space that opens up. And perhaps there are moments in your practice now that we've entered into the retreat for a few days in which you find yourself in this kind of clear, open, empty space in which you're not preoccupied with the things that usually dominate your inner monologue or you watch the inner monologue just doing its thing and it doesn't really grab you anymore or less. And so I think an important part of this practice is to consciously valorize and affirm those moments when the habitual reactivity at least momentarily comes to a stop. And this is also what the Buddha defines as nirvana or the unconditioned, the deathless. They're all described as the stopping of reactivity, not in a permanent way, but whenever this habitual, reactive, opinionatedness, whatever, dies down of its own accord, when it just sort of fades out, that is nirvana. And again, we don't have to look into the Zen text to get a sense of, uh, uh, of how this is somehow imminent. We find it in one of the very earliest uh, phrases the Buddha used to describe the Dharma and nirvana, which he described as uh, clearly visible and immediate. Uh, the experience of nirvana is not exclusive to Buddhists. Um, it's an experience that is open to anyone who consciously valorizes the stopping of habitual reactive patterns and settles into that quiet, still, clear space.
So in that way too, I feel that this uh, practice of son brings us into that quiet, clear, empty space. But this is not the end of the practice. This is not actually the goal of what we're seeking to do. This is actually um, an, an open space, an empty space, but one that is also uh, the source of spontaneity and creativity. It allows us to uh, respond to situations in life in a way that's not just the knee-jerk reaction of our habitual conditioning and, and behavior. And here I think we can see that we're getting uh, quite um, close to what we see illustrated in so many of the Zen koans. Um, this idea that the master, as it were, seeks to provoke in the student an authentic and spontaneous response that is their own. Not just repeating what the texts say, but coming up with a response that's completely original. Let me give you an example. Um, and I'm sorry, to, cat lovers won't like this. There were two monks called Nan Xuan and, uh, and Xiao Shu, or Zhou Shu. Um, and Nan Xuan one day saw the monks of the two hallways in the halls in the Zen monastery fighting over a cat, the monastery cat. Nan Chuan took hold of the cat and he told the monks, if any of you can say a word of Chan, you will save the cat. No one said anything. So Nan Chuan cut the cat in two. I, I can't quite believe that, but in any case, this is what the story says. <laughs> and that evening, uh, his student uh, Zhao Chu, or Joshu, came to the monastery and Nan Chuan told him what had happened, the story about the cat. And um, on hearing it, Zhao Xu removed, took off his sandals, put them on his head, and walked out the door. And Nan Chuan said, oh, if you had been here, you would have saved the cat. <laughs> now this is a typical Zen story that is kind of annoying and enigmatic and funny at the same time. But leaving aside cruelty to cats, which I don't approve of, um, what it does show is a number of things. It shows that um, when faced with a dilemma, like how do we save the cat, most people hesitate. And, they go, and in that silence, the Zen master says, okay, too late, we'll kill the cat. If Zhao Chu had been there, the you know, the, the great disciple Zhao Chu, and he just would have put his sandals on his head and walked out the door. That would have saved the cat. Why? I don't quite know. But the point is that these questions are resolved not by coming up with the right answer, but by making an appropriate gesture. And here I think we uh, come to this fourth task. The fourth task is to respond appropriately to the situation at hand in a way that's not conditioned by our habitual behavior. Without hesitation, spontaneously responding. So the fourth task uh, is not learning how to do the right Buddhist things, but it's learning how to uh, live from the open space that is, uh, becomes present through embracing the condition you're in, asking what is this in this case, letting go of your habitual react reactions and beliefs, beholding the space that opens up, and then responding. So in other words, there is no answer to this question, what is this? As long as we're thinking along those lines, we're actually treating this question as a problem to be solved rather than a mystery to be penetrated in which we let go of our habits and spontaneously and creatively respond. Another example of this 
uh, that um, I witnessed in, in Korea when we lived there in the monastery is that during the periods where we weren't meditating, we often went and visited you know, other Zen monks in different temples. But one season, uh, Martin and I uh, went to visit uh, Zen painters or Son artists. Uh, and most of them we visited were basically brush, they, they used brush stroke, brush art, calligraphy, or sometimes it was orchids or chrysanthemums or whatever. And what was interesting in seeing them work was that they would sit on the floor, very simple space, they'd have a pile of rice paper to one side, they'd have the ink stone and they would have rubbed the ink and they'd have water and they'd have their brush. Then they'd put a piece of paper in front of them, and let's say it's a Thursday, that means orchids. They'd spend the whole day doing orchids, and by a very formal model, in other words, you have to 13 strokes or whatever it is done in a certain way, it's highly formalistic. But when you see the end result, it looks very spontaneous. So what the monk would do, and sometimes it was a lay person or a lay woman, um, is that they would sit in front of the paper and get into a sort of meditative space. They would sit still, gather and collect themselves, and then at a certain moment, pick up the brush and... Orchid. They'd look at it, they'd put it to one side. They'd get back into their meditative state, pick up the brush, another orchid. And this went on all morning. And occasionally, they would sing, they would put the painting in a different pile. They'd say, ah, oh, that one works. That one gets the, the seal and the little signature to it. I could hardly tell what the difference was. But clearly from their point of view, they were aspiring to uh, create a work that was not conditioned by their habitual patterns of mind. They were performing a highly stylized activity, but one that allowed a degree of spontaneity and creativity nonetheless. And that's what they sought to uh, value. There's a very similar story, actually, in, the, in our own Greek tradition uh, concerning the painter Apelles, who's the, one of the great masters of Greek art. And this is a story that comes from Sextus Empiricus, who was a late uh, skeptical thinker. And he, uh, he regarded Apelles as someone who had attained the state of ataraxia. In other words, an untroubled state of mind, very similar to the Buddhist nirvana, actually. And one day, Apelles was uh, painting a picture of a horse, and he couldn't manage to get the, f the flecks of foam on the horse's mouth as it galloped uh, along. And he got so frustrated with this, he picked up the sponge that he used to clean his brushes, and he threw it at the horse, and the flecks were perfect. And this is attributed, too, to his being in an ataraxic state, a nirvanic state in which uh, opinions have gone, habits have gone. And we can probably extend that into different forms of art. And again, I don't think it's accidental that in the Zen tradition, whether it's Japan or Korea or China, um, the practice of Chan is thought of more as an art than a science. And I think this model of thinking of the Dharma as the practice of this fourfold task is closer to the practice of painting or writing or poetry or dance than it is to becoming proficient in a technical procedure. I don't think that's accidental. I think there is a uh, a strong um, uh, a paralleling of artistic expression or artistic life and this task-based ethics rather than 
adhering to a truth-based metaphysics. So in other words, when we look at it this way, if we think of son practice as contextualized within this fourfold task or this sequence of four tasks, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to take seriously the notion of enlightenment as though it is a special privileged state or moment. This whole model and the way the, the stories of these monks and others are described uh, don't really lend themselves to that kind of, oh, here's a moment of enlightenment. But rather, if we are to speak of awakening or enlightenment, it's a way of talking about a process. It's a way of talking about a complete relationship to our life as a whole. How we embrace it, how we let go of reactivity, how we stop and dwell in that empty space, and then how we respond. That it's only when all of those elements are somehow brought together into a co coherent whole, can we understand what in fact we mean by the practice. And this is not reducible to you know, special privileged moments that qualify us as having got the answer to the question. It's as much in how we, the gestures and the expressions that come out of this practice are just as significant as the moment of clarity, of emptiness, which is just as important as the act of letting go and the act of embracing what's going on. We can think of this as, as one experience with four dimensions, or we can think of it as a sequence. It doesn't really matter. They're both helpful. But they enable us to locate this practice within a, a broader life context, and that's, I think, important because it gets us out of this habit of thinking of meditation as a technique which will solve a problem and will get us some desirable goal. And finally, I feel that this way of looking at the four noble truths, the four tasks, as I call them, um, is further confirmed um, in what in Zen are called the four great vows that Martine spoke to you about on the first night. Um, the person who alerted me to this was, uh, was, was Gil Fronsdahl, who's both a, a, a Zen priest, or was trained as such, and is now a Vipassana teacher. He's also a scholar living in California. And he, 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 he was the first one who alerted me to the idea that the Four Noble Truths look as though that are the basis for the Four Great Vows. But if we drop the notion of noble truth and replace it with task, then the four great tasks quite naturally morph into the four great vows. So rather than truths, we're actually now talking about commitments, vows. And the first vow is uh, sentient beings are without limit. I vow to save them all. The second vow, um, afflictions are inexhaustible. I vow to, to stop them all. Third vow, dharma gates are without number. I vow to learn them all. And the fourth one, the Buddha way, there's not, the, the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to accomplish it. So in other words, sentient beings are limitless, I vow to save them, is really an expression of fully embracing suffering. We're not embracing suffering in the abstract, but it is beings, you and me and all others, who suffer. And that's the reach of this first task, is to embrace the totality of all sentient living beings and to respond to that suffering. Of course, it's an impossible uh, thing to undertake. There's no way we will 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll el eliminate the suffering of, of, of infinite beings. But I think it's a powerful expression because it points to the, uh, again, like this question is an impossible question, this is an impossible task. And yet one that we cannot, in a sense, um, uh, reject if we are to be true to our deepest uh, sense of what it means to be human. Afflictions are inexhaustible, we vow to sever them or stop them. So again, this refers to the, what rises up as a habitual reactivity or craving or delusion or opinionatedness. And this is endless. It's going to go on forever and ever probably. But that doesn't mean that we don't take on the challenge of seeking not to live from that perspective, to let go of those imperatives and let them come to a stop, even momentarily. And that opens up the Dharma gate. The Dharma gate, the, the, this is a Chinese expression, uh, but a gate, again, is an empty space through which we can move. And likewise, nirvana, or emptiness, is the absence of what obstructs us from responding in a more creative and spontaneous way. That when we are settling into this still open space, it's like it is a gateway to another way of living in this world. And the way that this unfolds is as a way of life, a path, the Eightfold Path, the Buddha way. And that's what we seek to practice. So we started with the Four Truths, we moved to the Four Tasks, and now we find ourselves back with the Four Vows. And I think that this way of looking at uh, the practice of what is this, the practice of song, um, is rather um, important, I think, uh, to, 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 to locate that within a broader frame of, of ethics, of, of philosophy, philosophy in the traditional Greek sense as a way of life, um, and, of course, a practice of contemplation which is what we're doing on this retreat. And in this way, I think, we can begin to understand how this practice, which on the surface might seem to be quite foreign to what we're familiar with in the traditional Indian forms of Buddhism, actually fits rather well. So I'm going to stop there. I've spoken longer than I intended to. Um, we have time for maybe one or two quick questions. Yes, at the end. So with that, um, Can you speak up a bit, please? Yeah, with Yeah, I think that I think that's where it where it ends up. Um, that um, you, it's, it's the same with the practice of mindfulness too. You start being mindful of your breath, your body, your feelings, but as that develops, you open up more and more to uh, the lives of others, all sentient beings, uh, as the texts say. And I think it's true likewise with this. What is this? It's, Inevitably, we start with ourselves, that's where we are. And so we, we often will be asking ourselves, what is this, what is my experience? But at a certain point, um, the whole of your environment and the world in which you are a part becomes likewise open to such questioning. And I think that that is the natural consequence of starting with you know, who is this? What am I? And in a way, the more you ask that of yourself, the more you become a puzzle for yourself, a mystery, the more the, 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 the rather sharply delineated 
parameters of me begin to break down. It's the same with mindfulness or awareness practices. When you notice that all of our experience is just impersonal thoughts and feelings and physical sensations and so on, that in itself erodes the fixity of me in my little tight cell of ego. It quite naturally begins to dissolve. And as that happens, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's this, what is this, you are opened more and more and more to the totality of life of which you are an inextricable part. So yeah, what is this leads, I feel, to, um, to all beings, inevitably. Um, and uh, so in that sense, it's not as though compassion and love and so on are sort of the, the, the long-term outcome of this practice, but they're there right, I think, at the very beginning. And uh, they're, they're implicit. Wisdom, compassion are implicit in the question, you know, what is this? Who are you, as it were? Um, <clears throat> thank you. Yes? Could I ask you to just say a little bit about the contribution of Taoism and Confucianism to the practice? No, certainly, um, I, you could almost go as far of uh, 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 instead of speaking of Zen Buddhism, you could actually speak of Buddhist Taoism. I think in many ways, um, there is um, within the Chan tradition um, a very strong flavor of Taoism, and in fact, in the Tang period, the in eighth century, which was the big flowering of Chan in China, they considered the works of Lao Tzu and Chuangzi as part of the canon. They were considered to be as authoritative as the Buddhist texts. Uh, later down the line, when they ran into all sorts of intersectarian conflicts with the Taoists, um, then they, Lao Tzu and Chuangzi were politely left to one side. But I think it's unmistakable uh, that the language, the the, 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 real, the, the, sort of the very feel of Chan or Son has a strong Taoist flavor. And ethically, um, particularly when you live in a monastery in Korea, for example, you realize that the, uh, the social context for your monastic life is, is, is more Confucian than it is Buddhist. It's all about uh, harmony within the community. Um, it's because Confucianism is, a, is an ethical system about each person in the society having certain duties and responsibilities uh, towards others in the society. You have six primary relationships, I think. And what you seek to achieve is a balance and a harmony in your social relations where you're um, maintaining by acting appropriately, the harmony of the whole. And that was very much the culture of the Zen monastery, the Son monastery we lived in in Korea. Um, but nonetheless, um, Buddhism does differ considerably from both. Um, Zen Buddhism does, I think, and I tried to illustrate this with the talk tonight, I think it does have very clear uh, roots within the Buddhist tradition rather than just the Taoist or the Confucian one. But certainly uh, that form of Buddhism has become, uh, has become what it is um, because of the influences of the Chinese genius. And this same thing happened in Tibet. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism is basically influenced by the animist and shamanistic traditions of Tibet. And there's no reason to imagine that things will play out differently in modernity. That uh, Buddhism, as it finds its voice and its form in this culture, uh, will inevitably take on the, uh, the trappings and the values and the, you know, the views of modernity. And I think that in some senses we can see that happening. And the, to this, I think, shows how uh, Buddhism has this curious uh, ability to somehow uh, cross cultural frontiers and reinvent itself. 
And the history of Buddhism, in a way, is the history of the tradition's own ability to keep reconfiguring itself according to new sets of needs in different uh, historical periods and different cultures. Okay, it's 8.30. We'll stop here. In 15 minutes, we'll come back and we'll have the last sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.